Hello and welcome. This is the Yoga Revolution podcast. My name is Jeevana Heyman. My pronouns are he and him. This podcast is an exploration of how we can live yoga right now and how we can apply the yoga teachings in our lives. We'll discuss the intersection of yoga and social justice, as well as how to build a practice that supports our activism. All my guests are contributors to my new book, Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. Thanks so much for joining me. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks again for joining me. I'm so excited today to have um, Michelle Cassandra Johnson here as my guest. Um, I love talking to her, and I just want to introduce her briefly. So Michelle is an author, yoga teacher, social justice activist, intuitive healer, and dismantling racism trainer. She approaches her life and work from a place of empowerment, embodiment, and integration. Oh my God, I love that so much. And personally, I just love Michelle so much. I'm so happy to have you here. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeevana. Thank you for inviting me to be here with you. Yeah, I always learn so much when I speak to you. And, um, you know, I think I think we first met a few years ago. You were a keynote speaker for um, the Accessible Yoga Conference in St. Louis. Is that when we, I think that's when we first met. That is when we met, yeah. I think. Yes. Yeah. It's the first time we met. Anyway, I just, I love, I love your work. I love reading your books, plural books. And (laughs) (laughs) I'm so grateful to you for contributing to my book, uh, which is what I kind of want to talk to you today. I thought, or I wondered if you could start by um, sharing the contribution that you gave in the book, like the little quote there. Do you have that? I do. I would be happy to to read it. Thanks. Okay. I do not see my practice of yoga as separate from the work I do to create a just world. They are one and the same to me. The way I practice and what I choose to center as the practice of yoga are focused on how we create a just world. Yoga is about selfless service, devotion, and knowledge. These paths are important keys to us realizing a world in which we we all can be free. My practice of meditation and movement, as well as the study of the Bhagavad Gita, provide emotional and spiritual sustenance to me. This nourishment from spiritual practice allows me to fully see with clarity the ways in which injustice persists on our planet. Being spiritually fed pushes me to strive to do everything I do in my practice off of my cushion or mat in service to the collective good and our liberation. Thank you. That's so powerful. And, you know, I'll tell you, even just today, um, this came up for me because, you know, we're back. It seems like the pandemic is continuing with COVID and um, it feels like there's a lot of confusion in the yoga world about how to respond to to that. And on our um, accessible yoga social media, there's a lot of discussion right now about that, about vaccines and the question of like, how does a yoga practitioner respond to this moment? And I feel like what I see people doing is often misusing philosophy um, to be about choice and using it to kind of support individual choice and not, and and to say that's freedom. That's what yoga is about. Just accepting everyone. Um, And I just love what you said about yoga is about service. How did you say, um, Yoga is about selfless service, 
devotion and knowledge. I mean, that's just so powerful. And what do you think about that, about how, how the teachings are often used kind of people, people use it to make their own point or something. Yeah, I think this is a reflection of the dominant culture and how many of us are conditioned to think of ourselves as individuals, not in relationship to other beings and the planet, the yeah. world around us. And so, and within the industry of wellness and yoga, and you, you know this very well, there's a like hyper-focus on individual transformation um, without actually talking about how we need to transform as a collective. And, yeah. and I've been thinking about this a lot related to the pandemic as well. I think it's just highlighting things that have always been, mm. but like, I want my sovereignty. I want choices as well. And mm. the choices I make affect everyone and everything. Mm. And the philosophy points to that because it talks about how we're in relationship and people taking that and internalizing it as I get to make a choice about what I do, that, that feels counter to the teachings and the practice in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's hard because I, I think the teachings were often, a lot of them were meant for um, monks, you know, and were, were designed to, for people who were withdrawing from the world. At least a lot of the teachings that we read, like the sutras in particular, the Gita feels different. You know, the Bhagavad Gita really speaks to, and I know that's the source you use and you mentioned in that quote, like the Gita speaks to more of service-oriented practice. And I feel like there's t it's two very different approaches to yoga don't you think yeah and i think about the yoga sutras as what do i need to practice so that i can transition out of my body and this mm. realm with ease and to become connected to everything i know mm. it's about much more than that <laughs> it's like a sentence of what <laughs> i think the practices are about and you're right i mean they they were for individuals and i think this is this is tricky and i also think we need to contextualize the teachings to what is what is happening and honor the teachings, right? For yeah. the time that people were in when those teachings were, teachings were created, you know? Um, and I, the Bhagavad Gita does feel very different because of everything in it and the context and the war and fighting a war to protect innocent people, um, but also that internal war, external war, the larger self and doing everything in devotion to God, that feels mm. so related to the sutras as well, right? And all of these practices deep devotion to something bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a strong relationship between the philosophies, but I do think the emphasis on the sutras is more like an inward path, leaving the world. And the Gita seems more of this service focused path of connection and duty and also devotion. Like you said, bhakti yoga, like love through love of the divine within us. Um, which I mean is mentioned in the in the sutras, but just doesn't feel as much of the emphasis. I know that your your first book, um, Skill in Action, really used that framework. I mean, you talk about the sutras too, I know, but that the Gita really is the framework, right, for that. Yeah, because it just when I was introduced to it, it spoke to my spirit in this way. I was like, oh, there is this this text and teaching and information about how we live our yoga and how we live, right? And how we relate and what's at stake and what are we willing to do and how do we live into our duty and what we're meant to do and we're here on purpose. Mm -hmm. So it just, it was, um, 
I mean, perfect timing when I, mm-hmm. when someone read from the event, I didn't know what they were reading from. And it really obviously struck me because skill in action became the name of my, my body of work and the book. And so much of what I do now and talking about how to radicalize spiritual spaces. And I also want to say, I think the yoga sutras, when I said for me, they're about like, what do I need to practice mm-hmm. so I can leave this body with ease and mm-hmm be absorbed, right? And that I'm part of everything and everyone. I also think about how I want to leave the world, right? Mm. How do I want to leave this place? I think that is part of what determines whether or not I get to transition with ease. How Mm. have I impacted the space, right? And so I'm not sure that was the intention of the teaching. I just wanted to name that because I'm thinking about it. It's not just my transition. For me, it's legacy too. And what do I want to leave? How do I want to leave this space? For, for other folks who will be here after I am, or if I come back in a different incarnation. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. I mean, I, I, I've i said that in the past myself, that yoga is preparation for death. And and I do think that's, I, I think that's what you're saying too, right? Like it's it's preparing mm-hmm. because you're, it's cultivating that inner relationship with the part of you that will transcend the world, you know, when you, right. the body and mind are going to, die um the spirit is immortal according to the teachings and so that's that you're cultivating that inner relationship in preparation but also it's true that um a lot of the teachings in the sutras are about ethics and how we interact in the world you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. yama you know the teachings of yama which we speak about a lot i mean it's like ahimsa it's not only about practicing ahimsa so that your mind can be peaceful but also so that you do less harm Right. in the world so it's both things inner and outer which is what i really try to get to in the book i mean th- this book is really an exploration of that um i don't know if you call it attention but about the relationship between our inner work and our outer work um, mm-hmm. and I, I think that what i see in the yoga world it, it seems like a, a lot of focus on the inner work without yeah. really looking at how it how you can't perform that inner work without looking at your external actions that they're, they're not they're, they're really the same so we can talk about them like separate things but really they're 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 so intimately related what we the way we practice our inner relationship affects our outer relationships and the way we serve mm-hmm. um, and i feel like that's what you're getting at too with your work around the relationship between yoga and social justice or racism or anti-racism right like how our inner work reflects in in our lives and in the society yeah, and we need to do the inner work, as you just named, and the outer work, that they're in relationship and one and the same. And and I mean, this is a, I believe, theme in the, the Gita too, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the, the context and the external war and the internal war and struggle, right? And resistance to live into what Arjuna was m- most meant to do in, in this story, in this, in this space. And so I think we need to work on all levels. And yes, I feel like so many yoga teachers and spaces I've been part of and exposed to are really focused on change yourself, focus on yourself, which, Mm -hmm. as you said, and I say this all the time, the external world affects us internally. And as Uh you said, like our internal work affects the external landscape. So as there's no separation in that way, and I think we need to invite more folks and yoga practitioners and people who practice with us and study with us 
into this understanding of the inner and the outer and the connection between the two. Could you say more about how, like how, how, because this is something I struggled with when I was writing the book. It's like, how do you find, like individually find that balance of inner work versus your like external activism or speaking up? Like, I don't know if you have guidance around that. Yeah, well, here's one thing I know, and this may resonate with folks listening. If I don't take time to practice, if I don't sit in front of my altar, if I don't ask myself how I'm showing up in the world or for myself or for the people I love, if I don't go back to the Gita over and over or offer um, make offerings to my ancestors, mm. I notice a difference in how I feel and then how I feel affects other people. So there's a direct, if I'm not in practice, then something's going to come out sideways when I'm interacting with someone. I'm mm-hmm. going to be less centered and grounded. I'm, I'm going to be more inward in the sense of like, I'm not going to notice I'm connected to other beings because the practice really reminds me of that and brings me into that because I'm praying to something bigger than me. And I'm sitting in front of an ancestor altar that has my, my people on it right? And I'm looking out in my yard at all the nature that's present there and alive. And so I feel like we have reminders all the time of how we're connected and the inner work that we need to do, um, as, as we've named, definitely affects how we show up. And if we don't do it, we're going to show up in a way that is not in service of the collective good. This is, this is my experience, right? Yeah, so we need to be yeah. in, in practice in whatever way, however people do do this, right? However they practice and need to start noticing like, okay, I practiced in this way and I noticed having a different conversation with my mother or my sibling or um, the person at the grocery store when I was in a rush and they were mm. being slow in quotes, right? So so I think we start, we need to start to notice, notice that. And I, I mean, the inner work is, is challenging. And I also feel like it's about noticing our conditioned responses. I mean, this is yoga, right? Noticing our patterns, our samskaras, our conditioned responses, and then trying to to figure out um, what we want to shift about those, right? Do we need to change the way we're thinking? Do we need to change what we're doing? Do we need to change the way we move physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually? Mm-hmm. So these are some of the things I think about when I think about inner yeah. and outer. And, and can you make that connection to your anti-racism work? I mean, how, because I feel like um, as a person with, um, in a white body, like I have a different job to do regarding that part of my work, my inner and outer work. And how, so I guess I'm, I, I was trying to explore that in the book, book a bit too, is like how our positionality affects the work that we do regarding our inner practice and our outer practice. Yeah. In dismantling racism work, anti-racism practice, um, we, and I'm saying we because often I work with people collaboratively, we always talk about needing to work on the personal, the institutional, the systemic, the cultural, so that we need to do work on all these different levels. And we need to engage some practices like self-awareness, which contemplative practice helps us deepen our self-awareness and our awareness about what is happening around us. And... um, I feel like sometimes people, because of individualism, just the same as yoga, get caught up in like, I've been to 18 workshops about racism. (laughs) 
I am thinking uh-huh. differently, but they may not be showing up in a, in a different way. So then it's the question is, what will we do to interrupt institutions and how they oppress many people? And what will we do to change the political landscape and um, the context we're, we're living in? I mean, it's, there's there's so many horrific things happening mm. right now. And mm. what will we do to shift the cultural norms, which takes takes a very long time or the narratives Right. And and the the culture has to do with what we're internalizing too about who we are and who others are. So mm-hmm. it takes all of the the work. Um, and I, it's so funny. I was just speaking with someone in an organization I'm doing work with and sh- and she is committed to anti-racism work and is having a lot of trouble with the inner work. Like she has values and beliefs that are anti-racist and yet is like is stunted or growth around what do I do interpersonally when I'm speaking to someone? How do I treat, she's a white body person, um, BIPOC folks in a different way? How do I have mm. a conversation that invites them into having agency? And so it's, I, I just wanna stress, like people can, can hold certain values and, and um, still not show up in a way that will support us being free, you know? And I also mm. think, um, and in service as we've, as we've talked about, and there was something else I wanted to say about the, but it'll come back to me. I think I was so channeling that it, it like <laughs> okay. moved through. Yeah. Well, actually I had a, one of the things I, I share in the book is just the, the possibility that the inner work can help us be more um, reflective of the privilege we have or that we lack. So that like, if you have privilege, you could use those inner that inner work to be aware of, of mm-hmm. that and create more space and be more conscious of your actions in the world. And if you feel that you don't have privilege and that you're oppressed, that you could use the practice to take care of yourself more, like use it as self-care more. And that right. subtle, that subtle difference is important. Like you can't, yoga is not just self-care period. It's a, there's like a really subtle way that we need to be moving in and out depending on where we are. And also just individually where, how we're feeling. You know? Yeah. And we know there's a lot of talk about self-care as individuals and not in relationship <laughs> to collective care. I mean, we can look at everything right. that's unfolding right now. And you're right. Yeah. Our roles are different, you know, based on the, our location, our positionality, the identities we embody. And so I love what you named about if we have more points of oppression, um, that we may need to engage these practices to, to rest, because yeah. things like white supremacy are unrelenting, right? And yeah. if we are, um, I'm racializing this, white-bodied, we may be overwhelmed by the world too, and the system too, and also white-bodied folks are benefiting from white supremacy, mm. not spiritually, I always say this, and not on a soul level, but in, in almost every other way, one can mm-hmm. benefit from, from a system and and be provided protections, right? And rights that other people do not have or not afforded to others. So in part of this practice, and this is the Bhagavad Gita, right? Figure out your, your role mm-hmm. and you can't practice someone else's Dharma that will cause more suffering. So figure mm-hmm. out your right role and how you want to show up for the task at hand and what's needed. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. I, I also love, um, I love the direction you're going with your work, like your new book, um, which really talks about the the grief of it. Like I've tried, it almost feels like you've you've found a way to 
express the emotion of the social justice struggle. You know what I mean? You, you've personalized it um, and talk about it as grief that we have to process and how emotion is how we get through this work. And we do this work not just by action, but by feeling. Is that mm-hmm. is that fair? Did I did I share it? That is very fair. Um, and it's a you know it's in response to history and the what we have denied or have not acknowledged as far as systemic oppression and also our own trauma um, from these systems and what we've internalized as I mentioned earlier. So it is it is about making space for our grief um, because so many of us get the message that we we shouldn't grieve or there's no time to grieve or we need to be strong. And that means not making space to, to grieve and finding refuge feels like the right next book after skill in action, because I think skill in action raised awareness for a lot of folks. That's what I hear, right? It, it spoke a truth that resonated with, with many people and um, finding refuge is also looking at, um, how people have been excluded and how people have been harmed and the patterns we keep, we continue to repeat. And then what happens in our bodies and the trauma that arises from not making space to process. Um, so it makes sense to me that it's the, and the heart work, it's, you know, the heart work that the work we need to do and the spiritual practices we need to engage to change our hearts, to notice our hearts, mm. which again will change how we engage in the world. Yeah. And actually, so I quote you later in my book from Skill in Action, but actually you speak to this. I, I think this was maybe the seed of your of Finding Refuge, that book, because um, can I, I don't know if I can read you back your quote here. Uh, sure. It's so beautiful. You say, um, if we're going to make social change, we need to cultivate a practice of feeling. If someone could think us out of the social injustice that we're swimming in, a very smart someone would have done so by now. When one connects with their feelings, as, as yoga teaches us to do, they can connect with their heart. If one is connected with their heart, they have the opportunity to be changed and to shift their perspective. They have the opportunity to feel the pain of living in a world that is designed to break the spirit through violence, oppression, and injustice. Feeling the pain, individually and more importantly, collectively, allows for us to grieve, to acknowledge, and truth tell, and to aspire to be better than the legacy that white supremacy has left us. Yeah, that quote. <laughs> that that is a powerful quote to hear hear back. And I do think that is the the seed and connection between the the two, and really what we're inviting people into when they when they practice with us, right? Like the deep yeah. work, not not the the easy practice. Although this practice can create ease for mm. for folks and cultivate that, and I think it's important to have a place of yeah. refuge, obviously, right? And ease, and it's it's deep work, like un, unbinding and unraveling and coming back into wholeness is what this um, practice has helped me do. Mm-hmm. Right, Finding Refuge. I mean, I didn't say that. That's the title of your second book, uh, Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief. And it's just an am- amazing book, which I've recently read. But I, um, so in that section where I quote you on, and what I just read back, I actually speak about the process of working to quiet the mind. And I, what I, what I feel like is often mis- misunderstood in yoga teachings is the relationship between the mind and emotions. It feels like we speak very intellectually about the mind, without really addressing the power of emotion. Which to me, emotion, emotion is what moves my mind. You know, emotion is what right. really gets me going. 
my thoughts I can generally control, emotion, not at all. So um, I feel like that's where you're going too, is like looking at, at least in this quote, really looking at the role of our emotional life in our spiritual practice. And mm-hmm. I, I connected to a part of the Gita where um, there's a passage, you know, where I think it's in chapter two, where Krishna speaks about what happens when the mind is out of control. Um, you know, when we dwell on the pleasure of senses. Okay. And then, and then he speaks about, well, but when there's peace and there's a quote, I, I don't know which translations you like, but there's this one section in a translation by Juan Mascara, which is the Penguin Classic uh, Gita. Mm-hmm. That's just so beautiful to me. I don't know if I could read this to you. Um, yeah. He says, when a man dwells on the pleasures of sense, attraction for them arises in him. From attraction arises desire, the lust of possession, and this leads to passion, to anger. From passion comes confusion of mind, then loss of remembrance, the forgetting of duty. From this loss comes the ruin of reason, and the ruin of reason leads man to destruction. But the soul that moves in the world of the senses and yet keeps the senses in harmony, free from attraction and aversion, finds rest in quietness. And in this quietness falls down the burden of all her sorrows. For when the heart has found quietness, wisdom has also found peace. There is no, there is no wisdom for a man without harmony. And without harmony, there is no contemplation. Without contemplation, there can, cannot be peace. And without peace, can there be joy. Mm, I love that. Me too. That's my translation. Yeah, it's powerful. Do you like that translation? Do you know that one? I I don't. I'm I've been looking for a new new translation, and I'm gonna check it out. Yeah, it's um, it's very poetic, you know, which is Mm -hmm. amazing. Um, I think you'd Mm -hmm. enjoy it. Anyway, I, I love that line about. In this quietness falls down the burden of all her sorrows, for when the heart has found quietness, wisdom has also found peace. And I feel like that's the message of your second book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. I was, yeah, in listening to it, thinking about that is that is the message. It, and it makes me think about our conversation earlier about inward and outward mm-hmm. work and um, when we go into the the heart space and we listen or we um, build the the skill of being with the the heart um, mm. things can emerge that will i mean there's there's wisdom there that will support us in as you just read creating a world that is not about destruction right mm. but instead a world that is about liberation or is about everyone finding their their peace and creating conditions for peace so mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. How how do you suggest we do that? Like, what do you offer people in that? To, how do they connect with their wisdom? Um, be quiet. <laughs> be still. <laughs> Initially, right? Like, be quiet. You know, <sighs> go into however people do this. Like, I meditate, right? But mm-hmm. and and pray and sit, as I said, and talk to the ancestors or invite them to talk with me. And, and yesterday I did this. I said, what do you, what do you need me to know? And, and what would you like as an offering? So these are things I do all the time, but like being still in a world that's moving very fast, there's a lot of urgency. There is a lot of work to do. And, and if we're, 
like never quiet, it's going to be hard for us to hear how we can actually do the work differently and do the work that's required for us to shift the tide and all that is happening right now. So yeah. um, it, a contemplative practices, whatever they may be for someone to go inside, to listen, um, and, and as I said, be still uh, and recognize when we're being swept up or distracted by things like dominant culture and capitalism. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, I really, I really, I really appreciate that, but I'm wondering, like, I just know for a lot of people, that's the biggest, um, hurdle uh, for me too, after doing, I've been doing this for a long time, practicing for 30 years and yeah. it's still hard to be quiet. How, I just wondered if you have some basic tools, like when you say, I, I, I asked my ancestors, like, can you describe what that's like more? I mean, it, is that a fair question? Like just. It is. Yes. Okay. Because it's new it's a new practice for some folks and it, and people who may not have a uh, yeah. people who may not be conscious of their relationship with their ancestors or there's trauma or i mean many mm -hmm. things I, I sort of said it like oh this is something i do because i've done it for a long time so yeah. the way that i come into stillness um which which actually doesn't always mean my body is still it means I'm mindful. I'm moving slowly, though. Mm -hmm. I am pausing. That's what I mean when I say stillness. But the way I do this is I pray. I sit. Um, I uh, pull divination cards. I, When I sat and asked my ancestors, I was in meditation, and I, I looked at the altar and, and said, what do you want me to know? And just asking that question and then waiting. It might not come like right then. It may come two days later. And in a way that, that people may feel like, oh, this is meant for me and I didn't expect this. And mm. people may not get an answer right away. So continue to ask for if people want to work with their ancestors, their healthy ancestors to, to support them, to give them wisdom. Uh, our ancestors lived through conditions similar to the ones we are living through right now in, in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, the trauma is deep. It runs deep. It's old. And there's wisdom there that we can draw from. And I just mm. believe they're, they're wanting to share their wisdom with us so we can do the things we've been talking about in this conversation. And then the, the other thing I do is nature. Like mm -hmm. the culture tells me I'm not nature. And mm. it also says, don't be in relationship with nature. Mm. Um, and so I, last night I was on zoom for nine and a half hours yesterday and wow. I, wow. it was such a long day. And so I, I went outside at like 8.30 after I got off Zoom and I um, walked in my yard and I have a ton of flowers and a garden and chickens and bees. And I saw this carpenter bee sleeping on a black-eyed Susan. And I saw this bumblebee sleeping on a sunflower. Mm. And I talked to the chickens and I felt my feet on the earth. This is a practice that allows me to slow down, right? Mm. Notice what is around you and listen. Um, if I'd been moving too fast, I would not have seen the, those bees sleeping, right, or, or being mm. still, or the beauty. Like, I was so overwhelmed with the, the yard, the beautiful aliveness in my yard, in my space. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's yeah. so helpful. Thank you. I, I know that um, for me, I, I often think about mm, what's going on in my heart and my mind and, and the inner dialogue that I'm having. And I, I think what you describe is so great because it's like, 
it can be so subtle to be just watching yourself and it can be more effective to have, you know, to use nature, not use, but to engage with nature that way, something bigger than yourself, you know, or your ancestors um, Mm -hmm. on an altar, like something, an external can be a great mirror. Yes. You know, like an altar is a great mirror for the spirit. Um, Mm -hmm. And some, but sometimes my, my practice is like, I, I wonder sometimes who's listening to my mind chatter. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, how am I hearing it? Yeah. And I, I reflect on that, like that, the listener, um, you know, and, and the speaker who's speaking. I was going to say that who's speaking, who's saying Is that, that's why, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I love the Gita too, because I always, I like to think of the Gita like that, of like this inner dialogue, you know, I mean, sure, it's a, it's a whole narrative story, but also it's this inner dialogue, right? Like <laughs> Arjuna and Krishna within. Right, um, right. Yeah. Like the listener and the speaker, the student and the teacher, um, mm-hmm. like the human and the divine parts yes. of, our, of ourselves, you know. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, I love talking to you. Anything else you can share with us? Any other thoughts? Um, um, I'm really excited about your, your book and oh. appreciative you are, your second book, right? Appreciative you are putting it out in the world so that we can engage with it as a tool and teacher. So thank mm. you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Really, that means a lot to me. And I, I also very much appreciate your your books and your teaching. Um, and you know, I'll we'll put links in the show notes to all of your your work, and people can find you for trainings and work. I know you do all kinds of teacher training yeah. and workshops and anti racism work in your books. And you have uh, what else? You have a your podcast. Yeah. Um, what else? You have so many things. I don't know. There's a lot. <laughs> good it's like all the different things i want to do they're all connected yeah so i hope people will get your books um and um you know and and study with you more because i learn so Mm -hmm. much from you all the time just like today so thanks so much for being here michelle i I really appreciate it thank you Tivana. all right take care you too okay bye Thanks so much for listening and joining the conversation. Yoga is truly a revolutionary practice. Thanks for being here. If you haven't already, I would love for you to read my book, Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. It's available wherever books are sold. Also, you can check out my website, jivanaheyman.com. There's some free classes on there and a meditation. And you can find out more about my upcoming trainings and other programs. Hope to see you next time. Thanks. Bye.